Well, good morning. Uh, again, welcome to Mount Calvary Church. My name is Ray Stewart. I'm the Connections Pastor here, uh, and so glad that, that we're able to worship together. One of the things that, that I get to do uh, and that I'm passionate about is connecting people in community. It's one of our, our habits uh, that we talk about in our discipleship journey, and um, we're launching another community group tomorrow. That'll make six uh, community groups that we've launched since the beginning of August this year. And so if you are interested in connecting uh, with uh, others in a community group, I'd love to talk with you more. Uh, as we get started today, we are going to go back to vocab uh, class or vocab, our voc- have a vocab lesson for today. And so I'm going to introduce you to a new word that, that many of you probably have not, not heard before. And the word is rogabbit. Okay, rogabbit. Now, the official, one official definition for raw gabbit is someone who tries to speak authoritatively about a subject of which they know nothing about. Someone trying to pass as an expert on a topic on which they have no clue. And so today, I'm going to be practicing raw gabbit in 2 Samuel chapter 4 and trying to communicate authoritatively uh, on this. But we... We actually have a raw gabbit, somebody with extreme skill uh, of raw gabbit in our family. Some, you, some of you have met her. Is Morgan's mom. Uh, she is incredibly smart, uh, highly intelligent. And when she answers a question, when she's asked a question, you always have to say, does she actually know this or is she just making it up? Because she can do it. I mean, it's just on the fly, she can do it. And so an example of this, okay? Now, these examples took me a week right? They're not as good as what she can come up with in the moment. But, you know, one of the kids, when they're younger, they might have asked her this question. They might have said, uh, why do donuts have holes in them? And, and she, without missing a beat, whatever she was doing, was, well, because they were street, street vendor food, and, and the, the donut sellers were carrying them around on a big stick. They needed holes to carry them around. Or one of the kids would ask her, why did cats scratch furniture? And she might immediately answer, it's because they're sharpening their claws. Now, neither of those answers is right, okay? And so you can, you can go to the internet and find the real answers. But these that took me a week pale in comparison to what Morgan's mom is able to do in split instant because she's just such a quick wit, very intelligent, uh, and she can easily convince other people that she knows exactly what she's talking about. Now, in reality, most of us do not need help in being convinced on things uh, that are not true, right? Most of us don't need help being convinced that something is true when it's not even close to reality. We do this to ourselves all the time that that it's easy for me to convince myself that something is true because I want it to be true. And we all do that. We want something to be true, so we believe it. And we start with that presupposition or, and predetermination, and then we go looking for evidence that supports our position. And people do that with the Bible and with God all the time. And, and there are truths in the Scriptures that we don't like, and because we don't like them, right, we, we still want to believe and trust in God, and so we look for evidence that supports our views. In 2 Samuel chapter 4 today, we're going to see two guys that are convinced that they are doing what God wants them to do, that they are serving the Lord, and yet it is the farthest thing from the truth, and we will see them judged 
at the end of Second uh, Samuel chapter four. BJ's already given you the the uh, the final scene of the movie that their hands and feet are going to get cut off and they're going to be hanged uh, from the corner. So let's read Second Samuel chapter four. It's only twelve verses. Um, it's got some hard names, so we're just going to say them with confidence. Rog Abbott, okay, Rog Abbott. Um, when it's Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron. Uh, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Banna, and the name of the other was Rechab, sons of Rimmon, a, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth. For Beeroth is also counted as part of Benjamin. The day the Beerothites fled uh, Gittim and have been sojourners there to this day. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. Now, the sons of Rimon, the Berethite, Rehab, or Rachab, and Banna set out, and about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth as, as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the middle of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. And then Rechab and Banna, his brother, escaped. When they had come into the house, as he lay in his bed in his bedroom, they struck him, put him to death, and beheaded him. And they took his head and went by the way of Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Banna, his brother, the sons of Rimon, the Berethite, as the Lord lives who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. When one told me, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him as Ziglag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own bed or in his own house on his bed, shall I now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, uh, they killed him and cut off, his, cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool of Hebron. And they uh, took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage. Uh, Lord, I pray that you work in a mighty way and help us to understand it. Lord, help us to draw close to you. Help us to encourage our faith to, uh, to, as we walk with you. Lord, help us to, uh, to see you at work in this passage and in our hearts today. It's in your name. Amen. If you have a Bible or a way of taking notes today, in the margins, I want you to write something. I want you to write, and this is the most important thing you can take away, is Pastor Matt did not want to preach this passage. <laughs> yeah, so you can write that in your Bible. Um, seriously, Matt doesn't look at the passages uh, as he's planning, uh, and this was a good week for, for him to get a break, and I appreciate the opportunity to look at his word, at God's word. Um, and so we're going we're gonna to walk through this, but 
seriously, we believe, I think I did this in my last sermon too. So um, we believe 2 Timothy 3.16 when it says that all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. And so we teach through books of the Bible and we're gonna come to passages like this. Uh, gruesome passages, this would be rated R, right? This uh, passage of beheading and, and drawn and quartering and that means that God says he's given us this passage for a reason, and it's profitable for us as we passionately pursue Christ. So today, my sermon structure is going to be a little, more, a little different than I typically do, and we're going to walk through kind of how I studied this passage because it was a blessing to me, uh, and, and so we're going, to, we're going to observe the passage first. What does the passage say? You know, what, wh- who is it about? Then we're going to examine what's the purpose of the passage. Why did God give us these 12 verses? Because he gave it to us for a reason. And then we're going to apply it to our lives. This is the normal process that I think through and pray through as I study. Uh, You don't normally see that, but we're going to work through that today together. So let's observe the passage, and we're going to start in verse 1. First, we, we meet Ishbosheth. Uh, Ishbosheth is Saul's son. He's the current king of the northern kingdoms, right? So Saul and Jonathan died. Ishbosheth is crowned king. Uh, and uh, Pastor Matt talked last week about how Ishbosheth was a weak king. And then in our passage, uh, he heard about Ab- how Abner had died. Now, Abner was his commander, his general of his army. Uh, And in chapter 3, Abner was going to switch sides, and yet out of jealousy, Joab killed him. And so Abner is dead. Ishbosheth is king. He has no commander, no general. And because of that, it says his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. And so that's the setting, right? David, for many, many years, has been waiting for God to make him king over all of Israel. And in the beginning of 2 Samuel chapter chapter 1, when Saul and Jonathan are reported as dead, he asks God, should I go up uh, to, to Hebron? And God says yes, and he's crowned over king of Judah, and yet he is not yet king over all of Israel. And so that's the setting that we have, that we have we have the son of Saul, who is king, who is an obstacle for David being the king over all of Israel. So let's keep going. In verse 2, we we meet our two main characters, so to speak, of of this account, right? We meet uh, Banna and Rechab. Um, they, they, are, they are captains of raiding bands. So what they would do is they served Israel by going out and raiding towns or supply caravans uh, in foreign territory and bringing those supplies back to Israel so Israel could fight and provide for its army. So these are our two main characters uh, that we're going to see in the passage. We keep going. We get to chapter, or verse 4, and this is an aside, Right, so verse four is not key to this passage, except to say that Ishbosheth is king. There's actually one more person that that is in line to be king if something happens to Ishbosheth, and that is Mephibosheth. Now we're going to learn more about Mephibosheth as we go later uh, in Second Samuel chapter four, and so this is setting that up. He, we're being introduced to another son, right, our son of of Jonathan, uh, who could have a claim to being the king. Uh, later, and we're going to learn more about him. So that's an aside. So that's verse 4. 
In verse 5 through 8, we, we get the account of uh, uh, Rachab and Banna uh, bravely sneaking into, uh, bravely sarcastic, right? So bravely sneaking into uh, Ishbosheth's house and killing him while he sleeps and cutting off his head and going to David. And so they sneak in. And in verse 8 is a key, key verse for us, right? They get to David. They present the head of Ishbosheth to him. And he says, here's the head of Ishbosheth the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king this day on Saul and his offspring. And so uh, Bana and Rechab uh, believe they are doing the work of God by killing Ishbosheth and bringing his head to David. That is their justification for doing it. In verses 9 through 12, we get very clearly that David did not believe that they were doing something that was good or right before the Lord. He believed very strongly that one, to raise their hand against the anointed of God was sin. And so, so he, he responds not with the reward that they're expecting, but with punishment. And we're reminded in verse 10 that David's response in this situation is consistent with how he's responded in the past. And it speaks about where Saul is dead, right? So Saul was in battle with the Philistines um, and he's losing. He asks his shield bearer to, to kill him. The shield bearer says no. And so Saul kills himself. But there was a man from the battle that runs to David to bring him the good news to say, Saul is dead and I killed him. And he expected to be rewarded for serving David and bringing the good news. And David is responding consistently there and here in this passage by saying, you have not done uh, what is honoring to the Lord. Okay, so that's, we've observed the text. It's a pretty straightforward and gruesome passage. Uh, two guys assassinate a king. They take off his head, take him to the rival king, and they are rewarded by being drawn and quartered. Rated our passage of scripture. Um, so, so what's the purpose, right? So we believe that there's purpose in this text that God gave us to us for reasons. Um, one, right, so I'm going to offer you three reasons that I think uh, that God has given us this text. Uh, one is God, the big picture, that God is keeping his promises to David, right? David, David was anointed king when he was young, right? And Saul was still king. And David, uh, David's been anointed, and yet he has not yet realized the full kingship over Israel. He's the king of Judah, but not over Israel. And Istraseth is standing in the way. He's the obstacle uh, for David being made king. And so you can come back next week and see how God fulfills that promise and what's next. Uh, but it's an extremely important event to describe how does David become king over all of Israel. And so God's given us the big picture that he's keeping his promise to David to make him king over Israel. I think a second purpose that we can see uh, is that David didn't think God needed any help. That God didn't need any help to keep his promise to David. Right? When David heard of the news of Saul and Jonathan, he mourned. He was broken that, that, that the king was dead, even though the king had tried to kill him. He didn't rejoice that his enemy was dead. He didn't rejoice when he heard that, that Abner, the commander of the army, the general opposing him, was dead. And he didn't rejoice here. Instead, he gets angry. 
And if we look at David's life, right, as we try to understand the purpose, we look at David's life, David never sought to do anything to help God fulfill his promise. David didn't raise his hand. David was a faithful servant of Saul. He married one of Saul's daughters. Jonathan was his best friend. He played music before Saul. Uh, He was a faithful soldier who went and fought the Philistines for Saul, and he trusted that when God anointed him as king, God would bring about his promise, that he didn't need to help. And even when David was on the run, right, Saul was jealous of David and sought to kill him, and David's on the run. He's in hiding in the wilderness for over a decade, right? Just one, one time, uh, he, he didn't want to fight uh, Saul, but twice, David had the chance to kill Saul, right? He's hiding in the cave with his men, and it just so happens that Saul needs to go to the bathroom, and he steps into this cave to use the bathroom, all of David's men are there saying, God has given you into, uh, given him into your hands, kill him. And David says, no. And he cuts off the, the corner of Saul's robe. And even that, he feels guilty for raising a hand against the anointed of God. He trusts that God is going to accomplish what he's promised and that God doesn't need his help. Another time, Saul is, is still seeking to find David. They, they see Saul and his army encamped, and David sneaks into the, uh, into the camp, uh, into Saul's tent while Saul is sleeping, and he doesn't kill Saul. He's trying any way possible so that he does not have to fight Paul, or Saul, sorry. And David, even when he ran in fear and he was living amongst the Philistines, he did not raise his hand uh, or fight against Saul. He almost did once, right? He was lined up for battle, and God rescued him uh, from that battle, and he, was, he and his men were sent home. And so I think that's, that's a, one of the purposes of this passage is David is clearly communicating in his judgment, right? He's the king. He is allowed to pass judgment, allowed to bring justice. And in his judgment of these men, he is saying, you do not need to help God. God will accomplish his promises. His, his promises. So it's a big theological truth that God does not need us to accomplish his will. He doesn't need us. He's the sovereign king over all creation. He speaks creation into being his command. He commands waves and storms. He has the power over sickness and death. He is omnipotent, all-powerful, and he does not need us. In theology, we call this, uh, this an immutable attribute of God. We call it his independence, God's independence. And Wayne Grudem uh, uh, writes in his um, systematic theology, he, he defines God's independence this way. He says, God does not need us or the rest of creation for anything, yet we and the rest of creation can glorify him and bring him joy. See, God didn't create everything because he was lonely. He didn't create everything because he was missing something. He was fully sufficient and satisfied in himself that he did not need anything else. And yet he chose to create all that is you and me. And past, uh, multiple passages throughout Scripture speak to God's independence, right? Acts chapter 17, verses 24 through 25, uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, is speaking to the men at Athens. And he says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. 
Psalm 50, verses 10 through 12, says, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all, the move, uh, all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Psalm 115, 3 says, Our God is in heaven, in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. And Job 42, 2, I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. David, in this passage, is not rewarding these men, but instead he is punishing them and not raising a hand against Saul before he's demonstrating his faith, his trust in God's independence. And it's consistent in his life where he said, God will accomplish what he says. He does not need me. The consistency and comfort that God's independence can have in our lives to know that God does not need us. And yet he still chose to create us and has invited us to worship him and to partner with him in the gospel and helping others know him. I believe that's a a key point of this passage is for us to see David's consistent faith that God would accomplish his promises and yet he did not need David to do it. It was not dependent. And so the stage has been set for 2 Samuel 5 where David will be made king over every, all of Israel. Uh, He's demonstrated the independence of God, his faith in that. And I think finally, There's a warning for us in this passage, a warning against uh, theological justification, a warning against theological justification. These two men, uh, Banna and Rechab, they claim in verse 8 that they are doing the Lord's work, that God has given uh, Ishbosheth into David's hand through them, and by killing them, uh, they are doing what God has asked them to do. They claim that God had given them success And now we know what David thinks about them. He has them killed and drawn and quartered. Uh, Commentator Dale Dale Ralph Davis says, says this about this men. These men, this won't be on the screen. He says, they come with blood on their hands, but theology on their lips, expecting that the latter will magically bleach the former. Murder always seems more pleasant when wrapped in religious considerations. We're not blind to human ambition. And so as we read this passage, it's not surprising that we, that it, it, it doesn't surprise us that we can easily see that these two men wanted to be rewarded richly for what they had done. But the warning here is just because you can apply or have theology to support the decision that you make does not mean that you are doing what God wants you to do. And so it's a warning against theological justification to sin. So we've observed the text. We've examined the purposes, right? The three purposes. Uh, and now let's apply the text. So I have four applications for us today. How does it, what does this mean for us as we passionately pursue Christ? The first truth, uh, the first application is we can rest in the truth that God keeps his promises just as he did for David. This this is absolutely key. We sang about this this morning, um, about he's been faithful in the past and he'll be faithful now. This is a key foundational point of our faith that God has shown himself faithful from creation to today. Key, key reason why we have so many stories of God keeping his promises throughout, the, throughout scriptures is to remind us that he does, 
He has kept his promises. He is keeping his promises, and he will continue to keep his promises. That is, that is a great comfort to us as we live in a world that feels darker and darker every day to know that God will keep his promises no matter how dark and desperate life may feel. We can rest in the fact that God has promised to never leave us nor forsake us, that he's working in us to the day of salvation. So we can rest in the truth that, that God keeps his promises. We can take comfort Second application is we can take comfort in the truth that God's success does not depend on you. Take comfort that God's success does not depend on you. It does not depend on Mount Calvary Church. It, it, God is independent. And this is for all my perfectionists that are in the room today, okay? All the perfectionists that are in the room, this is for you because I used to struggle. I used to struggle. What if I was sharing the gospel with somebody and I didn't know what to say? What if I messed up the words, what, what, what if I make a wrong decision or make a mistake? What if I, if I don't choose the right job or the right uh, person to date or the, the right place to go? The need to be perfect and the need to never make a mistake will wear you down and exhaust you. And you can, these can be good reasons, right? Good things that you're pursuing where you in, earnestly desire to do what is right for God, to make an impact for the kingdom of God, and yet it can wear you out, the stress. Am I doing the right thing? Am I doing enough? But the reality is that is not our stress. God's success is not dependent on you. God will accomplish his will with or without us, with our mistakes or without our participation. And just as I can never be perfectly holy and never sin, I can never perfectly do the will of God. But my mistakes don't surprise God. My mistakes don't surprise God and my failures don't cause God to think, what am I gonna do now? God never does that. God's success does not depend on you. And yet we hold that truth in tension with the fact that God has truly called us to be obedient to him. There are many things in scripture where we are called to go, to, tell the God, to share the gospel, to tell others about Jesus. We are called to be holy and to be perfect. So we hold these, these two truths in tension that God does not need us for success to accomplish his will. And yet he still wants to use us in accomplishing his will. So be encouraged. That's the third application today is be encouraged that God will, still wants to use us in accomplishing his will. He's invited us, he's invited Mount Calvary Church to be a part of taking the gospel to people in Elizabethtown and uh, throughout Lancaster County, the area and the world. He's invited us to partner with him and to participate with him in the work that he does. He doesn't need us. He says if he was hungry, he wouldn't ask us to feed him. And yet he invites us to participate with him as we go about our lives and telling others the good news about Jesus and loving and caring for others and being light in the darkness. When my kids were younger, um, this doesn't happen anymore, but when my kids were younger, they would ask, I, was, I would be doing a, a chore or a task, right? I'd be going outside and raking the leaves or, or stacking the firewood and they, they would ask, can I go and help? Now they don't do that anymore. But they, they did it when they were young, and, and the thought in my head was, okay, if I let them come and help me, that's good, 
bonding time, but it's going to take me twice as long. <laughs> right? It's going to be twice as hard because they're not going to do it right or they're going to be in the way. Right? If I'm throwing firewood and Andrew, the six or seven-year-old Andrew standing there and, and tossing firewood, I've got to make sure I don't hit him. Right? And so it's twice as hard. Plus, he can't throw it very far, so he doesn't get, I have to pick up his stuff and do it too. But God is not like that, right? God, our Heavenly Father, doesn't see us as a burden who slows him down. He, he welcomes our participation and partnership with him. And so he doesn't need us, and yet we can be encouraged because he invites us to participate with him in accomplishing his will. And the last application for today is we can walk humbly in walk humbly in your theological confidence. Just as Bana and Rachab, uh, we can come up with religious and theological justifications for many things that we do, how we treat people, how we respond, uh, choices that we make, and we can come up with the religious or theological justification for things that don't honor God in the end. The Pharisees during Jesus' time were excellent at this. They'd say, their mom and dad, they say, hey, we can't care for you because we've dedicated our money to God. And so we can't care for you because we've given it as a gift, as a promise. They couldn't care for lepers because if they did, they would be unclean. They couldn't eat with sinners and tax collectors because if they did, they would be seen as sinners themselves. They came up with theological reasons and justifications for not doing the very thing that God had asked them to do. And we do that as well. We can justify not holding intention, the love of God with the holiness of God. We can speak uh, from a position of theological arrogance without ever caring for somebody that's in need. We can love and accept people without ever telling them to go and sin no more like Jesus did with the adulterous woman. We tend to pick sides and then we use theology to justify which side that we picked. Sin is sin and no sin except the rejection of Jesus Christ is unforgivable. Walk humbly in your theological confidence. So application for today. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 4 that ends with uh, two men getting their hands and their feet cut off and hung in the square. Rest in the truth that God keeps his promises. Take comfort in the truth that God's success does not depend on you. Be encouraged that God still wants to include you in accomplishing his will and walk humbly in your theological confidence. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I thank you. I thank you for passages like 2 Samuel chapter 4 that show us the, the depth of your word. Lord, I thank you that, that you give us the Holy Spirit to help us to understand and apply your word to our lives. And Lord, I pray that we would uh, we would dwell on it. We would dwell on this passage this week, and Lord, may it encourage us and challenge us as we walk with you. Thank you for choosing to love us, choosing to offer us salvation in your Son. It's in your name. Amen.